Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you all. Um, we were visiting Paige last weekend, and so we got to worship with her at, at a sister fire church called Sovereign Grace Bible Church there in Phoenix, so that was uh, a blessing to, to meet her church family that she's getting to know there, but we're, we missed being with our church family, so it's great to be back with you. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. 1 Peter 1, 22. Our study through the, this first epistle of the Apostle Peter's has brought us to verse 22 this morning. And if you recall, the Apostle Peter began his letter to these Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor. He, he began his letter by reminding them of the salvation that they enjoy now, and especially he was focusing on the, their final salvation that awaits them in the future at Christ's return. So that was the beginning of the letter, but then ever since verse 13, really, of chapter 1, Peter has been uh, exhorting them. He's been teaching the believers how they are to live now as, as Christians, as, as exiles in this fallen world. He's teaching them what it looks like to follow Christ in a fallen world, which is the name of our series through this, this uh, book. So far, we've seen Peter give three main commands to the believers there. <clears throat> Excuse me, the first came in verse 13 when he said, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when Christ returns. The second command was in verse 15, Be holy in all your conduct. And then the third command came in verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout this time of your exile. Now here in verse 22, the Apostle Peter gives a fourth command, which hones in on how they are to treat each other within the body of Christ. And it's simply love one another. So our text today will be verses 22 through 25. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verses 22 through 25, I'd ask the congregation to please stand <clears throat> in honor of God's word. <clears throat> Let's hear the word of the Lord together. 1 Peter 1.22 Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. <clears throat> I want to begin by asking you a, a question, actually two questions, but they're basically uh, the same, uh, different ways of asking the same thing. For what should Christians be known? For what should Christians be known? Or if you were to give one thing that should mark the life of a Christian, what would it be? One characteristic. Today we're going to see from God's word in, in these few verses here that love is the answer to both of those questions. <laughs> love. Love is what Christians should be known for. Love is what should mark the lives 
of Christians. And that's what Peter's exhorting the, the believers to. <clears throat> so the title of the sermon this morning is Saved to Love. We have been saved to love. Peter exhorts the believers to love one another. And, and in so doing, he's, he's going to explain to us that love is the purpose of their salvation. And love should be the result of their salvation. They've been saved to love. And so have we today, if we're in Christ. We have been saved to love. To love God, to love one another. And even, as the Bible says, to love our neighbor, love even our enemies by God's grace. So today as we work through verses 22 through 25, I want to point out two reasons that the text gives for us loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. The first reason is going to come before the command, and then the second reason is going to come after the command. So it's like the command to love one another is sandwiched in between these two reasons. All right, so we want to look at those two reasons. Here's the first one. If you're taking notes, you can, you can write, write this in those blanks here. Love one another earnestly because you are set apart for the Lord to live a life marked by love. You are set apart for the Lord to live a life marked by love. We're going to see this, this gets to the very heart of our purpose. Why are we here? Why has God saved us? Well, part of that answer certainly A big part is we are set apart for the Lord to live a life marked by love. Look at verse 22. This first reason comes in this long phrase before the command. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So there's the reason that everything before love one another earnestly. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That's the first reason. Now obviously that's a long phrase, right? So I want to break it down a little more into smaller chunks for us. Let's start right in the middle there where it says your obedience to the truth. Right? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. What's he talking about there? What is your obedience to the truth? That's how Peter describes believing in the gospel. That's how Peter describes, as we would say in our modern terms, perhaps trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Isn't that interesting? He calls it by your obedience to the truth. We're going to see examples of this throughout the letter. Peter describing believing in Christ, believing the gospel along those words. In in chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, talking about unbelievers, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So see, they're they're unbelievers because they're not obeying the word or the truth of the gospel. In in chapter 3, verse 1, again, talking about how a believing wife should live with her unbelieving husband. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So see, he's describing the fact that the fact they don't believe in, in Jesus means they're not obeying the word. Chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, 
What will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Again, talking about unbelievers. Those who do not obey the gospel of God. And by the way, it's not just Peter who describes believing the gospel as, as obedience. The Apostle Paul uses the same description in a couple places, but I'll just point out one. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, when he's talking about, he says, the context is he's saying when Christ returns, he's going to bring judgment on those who, quote, who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus, it just says. That's first, or 2 Thessalonians 1.8. So I think that's interesting, and I didn't want to just gloss over that too quickly. Believing in Jesus is obeying the truth of the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel means good news, right? So the gospel is a proclamation of good news. It's the good news that through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has defeated sin and death and evil. The gospel is the, is the proclamation of the good news that Jesus is Lord, right? He's, he's lived, he's died, he's risen again. He's been exalted to the Father's right hand. He's ruling from his heavenly throne. So the, the gospel is a proclamation of the good news that Jesus is Lord, And he's defeated our enemies. He is Lord. And he commands everyone then to repent. That's what Paul says in Acts 17, right? When he's preaching to the the men in Athens. The Lord Jesus is Lord and commands everyone to repent and embrace him as Savior and Lord through faith. So that's the gospel. It's It's that proclamation. We could say one more thing too. The gospel is... Good news that all who do repent and believe will receive forgiveness of sins. They'll receive entrance into Christ's eternal kingdom. They'll receive and be given eternal life with God. So you see, the gospel is a proclamation of news of what Jesus has done, of who Jesus is, of what he commands us to do, of what he promises to give those who repent and believe. So it's a proclamation of good news, and I hope you see it's, it's, it's a proclamation of news that demands a response. What is the obedient response to this truth? What is the obedient response to the truth that Jesus has lived, died, risen again, exalted, he's defeated sin and death, he is Lord, he commands everyone to repent? What is the proper response? Repent. Repent and believe the good news. Isn't that how John the Baptist preached? That's how Jesus preached. That's how the apostles preached. Repent. The time has come. Repent and believe the good news. The the obedient response to the truth, right? I love how the, the Bible talks about that. Sometimes it says the gospel. Sometimes it says word. Sometimes it says truth. They're all synonyms because it's true. This really happened. Jesus really came and lived and died and rose again. He really is Lord. He really is the final judge. He really is going to reign forever. And he really does forgive and welcome sinners into his kingdom. So the proper response to this truth is is to, to forsake our sin and to embrace Jesus through faith as Savior and Lord. That is the proper response. And by God's grace, 
the people to whom Peter is writing have done that. (laughs) By God's grace, they have obeyed the truth of the gospel. They have turned from their sins and through faith embraced Jesus as Lord. By God's grace, they have believed and committed themselves to following Jesus. To learning from him to, in order to become like him. He is Lord. He is master. They've obeyed the truth. And I, I linger here. Because I fear that some people listening to this sermon this morning have not done that. You've heard the truth over and over that Jesus is Savior and Lord. But have you responded to it? Have you obeyed that truth by forsaking your sin and turning to Jesus? And again, I fear some have not done that. They they just hear the the proclamation and they're, they're indifferent. Or maybe they don't believe it. Maybe, maybe... You're, you're sitting there thinking, I'm not going to submit to Jesus. I don't, I don't want him to be master of my life. I'm going to be master of my life. Or maybe you're sitting there thinking, you know what? I, this sounds too, um, what's the word? Um, I can't think of what the word I want to use. Too, uh, like... Too narrow-minded. This is, this is too exclusive. That, there's the word. This is too exclusive. I think there's other ways to God. I, I, don't think, I don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God. Matter of fact, some may be thinking, you know what? I'm, I'm going to get to heaven my own way. Whatever the reason may be, some of you have not responded to the truth of the gospel. And so I, I plead with you. Don't delay. This is true. The gospel is the word of truth. Jesus really is Lord of the universe. Jesus really is the only way for sinners like you and me to be made right with our creator. Jesus really is a a powerful and loving and faithful king. And he really does welcome sinners into his kingdom. He really will forgive your sins. And so I plead with you today to believe in him, to forsake your sin and by faith embrace him as Savior and Lord. The Bible says that one day everyone will know this is true, right? Whether the gospel is the proclamation of truth and whether you believe it or not, it's still true. And one day everyone will know it's true because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But if, if the person is doing that on that final day for the first time, that's too late. The, the person that did not in this life forsake their sin and turn to Jesus, on that final day, they'll hear from King Jesus, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. So again, don't delay Don't delay. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King, and He's a good and gracious King. So obey the truth of the gospel today. 
and come to him. Give your life to him. Ask God to help you forsake your sin. Ask God to help to open your eyes. Ask God to help you embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if, if any of you would like to talk with me more about that after the service, please, please do so. Like I said, the people Peter is writing to, by God's grace, have done that. They've obeyed the truth of the gospel. And look what Peter says happened when they did. Verse 22 again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. So when they obeyed the truth, when they obeyed the gospel, when they, when they turned to Christ in repentance and faith, something happened. It says they purified their souls. That word purify means to consecrate, to set apart. Obviously, sometimes in the Bible, it talks about God doing that to us. Here, it's actually saying we do that, right? Having, when they believed in Jesus, they set themselves apart from the sinful world. And they set themselves apart for service to God. That's the idea behind consecration or purif purification, as the ESV says. It means you're set apart for God. You're, you're you're set apart from this sinful world, world for God, for God's glory to be used by God. This participle, uh, having purified, is in the perfect tense in Greek, which I point out because that's significant. That means it was a previous action that now has abiding results, ongoing results. So having believed in Christ at a place in the future, having obeyed the truth of the gospel, having forsaken their sin and turned to Christ, now they are in this state of being set apart for God. That's what having purified their, your souls looks like. So again, this is helpful, I, I trust, to us. Reminding us what it even means to be a Christian. As Christians, we are set apart for God. We are saved to live for God, we're saved to bring glory to God by enjoying Him and delighting in Him and obeying Him. So what does that look like? How specifically does Peter say we bring glory to God? We'll look at that last chunk of that reason. Verse 22 says the primary way that we bring glory to God is by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look again with me at this, at this long reason at the beginning of 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. You see, he's, he's stating like the purpose, what, what all this is for. Our lives are set apart for God's glory and what sets them apart, right? What is it that sets us apart? Is it, is it because we all wear ties now or something? No. What sets us apart, what marks up Christians or should mark Christians as distinct is our love. And here it's specifically talking about our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Because when God saves us, he not only unites us to Christ and he not only comes and indwells us personally by his spirit but he places us in the body of Christ we're placed in the family of God we become adopted children of God with brothers and sisters in Christ 
And so our lives are to be set apart for God's glory by loving one another. This is what Jesus told his disciples would make them distinct, isn't it? Remember in the upper room in John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You think that was in Peter's mind by the Holy Spirit as he's writing this? (laughs) I'm sure he's remembering Jesus' words because he says it several times in the upper room, by the way, right? It's in John's mind. Look at John's epistle in 1 John, how often he talks about it. This is what marks believers, is that we confess Jesus as Lord, John says, but also that we have love for one another. So Peter has thoroughly laid out this first reason, hasn't he? By believing the gospel, the Christians have set themselves apart to bring glory to God, and what specifically will set them apart more than anything else is their love for one another. So in light of all that, for that reason, guess what Peter exhorts them to do then? (laughs) pretty obvious isn't it love one another then look at verse 22 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love here's the command love one another earnestly from a pure heart wow one of the foundational ways that we bring glory to god one of the the primary distinctives of a christian one of the primary fruits of being a christian is to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now Peter's not really going to talk about it so much here um, as far as defining it. He, it'll flesh out later in the letter. We will see he kind of gives what we shouldn't do in the context, and I'll get to that. But we know what love is, right? I mean, what biblical agape love is. It's sacrificially seeking the good of another. And it's, and it's not a, an emotionless transaction either. It's, it entails caring for and valuing the other person it it entails our whole being our our mind our will and our affections all of these are to be engaged as we're loving one another notice it it's to be a sincere brotherly love that was even in that clause in the in the reason right for a sincere brotherly love this is to be sincere this is not to be uh hypocritical this is love without hypocrisy in other words it's genuine it's not two-faced it's not just putting on a show it's genuinely caring about the good of the other person and then giving sacrificially for their good to meet their needs (laughs) such love should characterize christians again from the upper room john 13 34 jesus says a new commandment i give to you that you love one another, and then he gives the standard, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then the verse we read earlier, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then a couple of chapters later, when Jesus is praying in the garden, in his high priestly prayer, John 17 verse 22 saying to the Father, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly uh, one, excuse me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Again, he's, he's talking about this is what sets us apart. This is what makes us distinct, is our love, our unity for one another. 
That's how the unbelieving world will know that Jesus, that the truth of the gospel is in fact true. That Jesus really did come and do what the Bible says he did. Because the evidence is that he's made such a difference in our lives. He's changed us. He's transformed us. He's, he's, he's transformed us from selfish, unloving people to sacrificial, loving people. Which is a process, obviously, right? So the believers, like I said, are actually, in this, in this context, they're more warned of what love doesn't look like. They're warned of the opposite of sincere love in verse 1 of chapter 2. Allow your eyes to go forward to that. Chapter, or verse 1 of chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now verse 1 there serves as a transition into chapter 2. Kind of a transition from this section on love. But also then it's transitioning into this section on God's word. So we're going to talk more about it uh, next time, Lord willing. But I, I trust you see we kind of have here the put off and the put on. As the New Testament often gives us, right? Put off malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and put on sincere brotherly love. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Loving one another earnestly means we're going to get rid of the behavior that would harm the other person. That's why Peter says, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, right? Those are all hurtful things. And so he says, put those away. Get rid of those. Don't treat each other that way. That's how the unsaved world acts. But you are set apart for God. Therefore, your lives are to be marked by love. So the church is to display the glory and love of God to the watching world. And, and, and again, we, we understand this, don't we? If, if, the, if the unsaved world sees professing, professing Christians treating each other with these things, with malice and deceit and hypocrisy and slander, what does it do to our testimony? What does it do to our proclamation of the gospel? It undermines it, doesn't it? It, it calls it into question. It, it brings dishonor to the name of Christ. It, it puts a stumbling block before others for believing in Christ. They're going to be like, well... They're no, they're no different. They're no better. Why? Jesus must not, this whole Jesus thing must not be real. He's not making much of a difference in their lives. No, Christians' lives are to be marked by love. This will bring glory to God because when people see our love, this is what Jesus was saying, right? It will point them back to God. It will mark us as a follower of Christ and it will point them back to God. Why? Because God is the source of our love. This love didn't come from us. This love, our love reflects in some way who God is. God is love. 1 John 4 says. And here's where I, I just picked some bullet points just to kind of flesh this out a little more about of what is salvation. Well, sal- we're reminded here that salvation is restoring the image of God. And when I say restoring, we know we're all, all, all people are created in the image of God and unbelievers are still in the image of God. What does that mean? The image of God means that we are, we're made to represent God, to reflect who he is, but sin has drastically distorted it. It hasn't erased the image of God, but it's drastically distorted it to where now, as unbelievers, we, 
we don't reflect who God is at all, really. It's, it's very distorted. I'll just say it that way, right? Very distorted. Well, what, is, what, is, what happens in salvation? Well, in salvation, we're transformed, and the Spirit begin, he, he makes us a new creation, and He begins the process of sanctifying us, conforming us increasingly into the image of Christ. So that we are increasingly representing God accurately. And again, we fall way short of this, I know, but, but that's the vision, right? That's, that's what God's doing, is as we abide in, in, in Christ's love, the Spirit is conforming us more into the image of Christ. He's producing in us the fruit of the Spirit, namely love, so that we better reflect who Christ is and, and we better image who God is. A parallel passage to this would be Colossians chapter 3. And that's a pretty long put off, put off and put on passage. But just listen, I'll start reading in verse 8. Paul uses some of the same words that Peter does here. Colossians 3.8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And have put on the new self. Here it is which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That was Colossians 3.10. Here, talking about the body of Christ, this new man, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's what we're called to do. That's the work that God is doing in us. In salvation, God is conforming us to the image of Christ so that we increasingly reflect the image of God in our lives. And again, this passage in 1 Peter 1 not only reminds us that salvation is restoring the image of God, but also that second bullet point is salvation has placed us in the family of God. And I mentioned that earlier, and we've already seen that in Peter's letter, right? When God saves us, he adopts us into his family through Christ. So now we are children of God, and as blood-bought children, we are to look like our heavenly Father. God is love. And as we grow up in our salvation, we are then to be increasingly marked by love, right? Just like as a, as a son, as he grows up and becomes more a man, he probably is going to increasingly look like his dad. <laughs> so we as children, as we grow up in our salvation, we are to be increasingly marked by love so that we look more and more like our Heavenly Father. I won't take the time to, to go there um, and read everything I was tempted to read, but uh, like I said earlier, the letter of 1 John really um, develops this, this truth. John will talk about in, in chapters 2 and 3, like a believer cannot make a practice of sinning. Doesn't mean he doesn't still struggle with sin, but it means he's not going to live continually in unrepentant sin. Because he says that's how the devil is. 
And that's how we all are by nature. We're children of the devil. And so, yes, we look like the devil in the fact that we sin and, and just kind of live in it. But when God saves us, we're adopted into his family, and God is love. And so now, as children of God, we are to display love and look like our heavenly father. So you can read about that in chapter 2 and chapter 3. I'll just read two verses of 1 John 4. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Pretty straightforward, really, isn't it? And it makes sense. God is love. And so if you have the Spirit of God in you, if you've been born of God, you're going to display love too, in some way. So there's the first reason. I know I, I lingered on it for a while, but we'll cover the second one faster. Love one another earnestly because you are set apart for the Lord to live a life marked by love. So the first reason came before the command. Remember, the second reason comes after the command. And here it is. Here's the way I summarized it. You've been born again with an eternal nature. So the command comes at the end of verse 22, right? Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What's the first word of verse 23? Since, see here's the reason, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever and this, is, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So Peter simply says, since you've been born again, you are to love one another. So this command to love one another is based on the fact of our having been born again through the word of God. See, that teaches us something important about salvation, doesn't it? This is how God saves. We are born again by the, the Spirit of God taking the Word of God and doing a work in our life. By nature, we know the Bible says we are dead in our sins. But as the gospel is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and uses it to give us spiritual life. To give us a new life, a resurrection in our hearts. In this new life, I'll ask it as a question. How is that new life evidenced? How do you know when someone has been born again? Well, probably the first evidence would be that they're confessing Jesus as Lord, right? First John says that. And, and, and Paul will say that. No one can confess that Jesus is Lord without the Spirit of God. So that's kind of like the, the initial fruit, right? Is, is they're believing, they're repenting and believing in Jesus, and then as I said earlier, the ongoing evidence then is love. Love for God. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And love for the people of God. So Peter's point here is that this new life that God has given us will bear the fruit of love to others. The ongoing evidence that we have new life is going to be love and certainly the other fruit of the Spirit, right? Being displayed in our lives. And really what Peter's doing in these verses is he's, he's showing the superiority of this new life by, by really contrasting um, the seed that brought about this new life versus the seed that brought about the, our old physical life. That's what he's doing here. 
He's saying this new life is far superior to our old life. Our old life came from the perishable seed of human procreation. Right? Human procreation produces life that is perishable. Life that has temporary glory. Right? Think about our lives. (laughs) Temporary glory. Temporary beauty. Right? I mean... I was trying to think, like, what, where, where are most of us at our, our peak? You know, maybe our early 20s, right? You guys can be excited. You're, you're back there, you're kind of in your peak, right? You know, I mean, man, you're just fit, you know, and, and, and you're looking good. You're, you're strong, maybe, by God's grace. You're strong, you're healthy. But that quickly fades, doesn't it? Very quickly, the, the, the aches come. Very quickly, the wrinkles come, <laughs> Very quickly, the, the spots or the, or, the, or the drooping or whatever comes, right? Very quickly, that glory starts fading. That's what he's saying here, right? It, it, our lives, uh, our, our old life, our, our physical life that comes from human procreation is like grass, like, like the flowers that spring up and are beautiful for a time, but then they quickly wither away. Ah, but the new life is superior to the old life because What brings about the new life? What seed brings about the new life? The Word of God. Does the Word of God fade? Does the Word of God uh, decay like the flowers? No. He says the Word of God endures forever. Our original lives are perishable because of Adam's fall into sin brought death to all of us. And it's that old perishable self that that bears those deeds, those works of the flesh, right? Slander, jealousy, and hatred. But the new birth generates spiritual life, and the new birth comes from the imperishable seed of the Word of God. So the Word of God is eternal, and because it's eternal, it produces life that's eternal. The glory of this new life does not fade. It does not die. Our new life in Christ lasts forever, praise God. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self, this new life, is being renewed day by day. Loved ones, God by His Spirit and through His Word has given you new life. And that life is eternal. And God's Spirit will continue to use His Word to grow us and conform us into the image of Christ so that we increasingly love others the way Jesus has loved us. Praise God. And again, I don't really have time to, to, spend, to linger on this too long, but it is, I thought, significant that Peter highlights the eternal nature of God's Word by quoting from Isaiah 40. A significant chapter, right? That's like the kind of the John the Baptist chapter where, you know, a voice in the wilderness is proclaiming the way of the Lord and then it's talking about the Lord coming. Remember what's going on in Isaiah? Well, they've been hearing for the first 39 chapters that how they're going to be conquered by the Babylonians because of their disobedience. They're going to be led into exile. But then in chapter 40, hope is, is born. <laughs> And he says, yes, you're going to be carried away in exile, but I'm going to regather you. And I myself am going to come and do it. I myself am going to come and save you and regather you. This would have been, especially, you know, as 
and I think Peter's writing to Jews and Gentiles both, but as, as they were learning and understanding the Old Testament, this would have been an encouragement to the Christians to whom Peter wrote. Remember where they are. They're scattered. They're experiencing the growing persecution from Rome. <laughs> They're exiles too, right? The Roman Empire looks powerful, but like the flowers, its glory would soon fade. But Christians are part of an eternal, glorious kingdom, Christ's kingdom. And so despite their suffering, I think Peter's reminding them, God has not forgotten you. He is with you by his indwelling spirit. He's at work in your lives. He's transforming you to love like Jesus. And one day, you'll be fully conformed to the image of Christ when he returns and you'll be with him forever. And so Peter says we are to love one another earnestly because we've been given new life, eternal life through the enduring word of God. And again, this is a reminder to us when God saves us, he makes us a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Our old, unloving self died and a new self capable of love, a new self that has God's love poured into its heart through the Holy Spirit has been created. So again, even though we're in a section on the commands, right? We're in a section where Peter's exhorting believers to do stuff. It's all rooted in the gospel. It's all rooted in who we are, what God has done and is doing in us. It's not pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and just do better and grin and bear it and love one another. No, saying be who you are in Christ. You have been born again. You have God's seed, imperishable seed living in you. We have new life in Christ. We have the spirit of God dwelling inside us. So I'll make two points quickly of how our new birth relates to our call to love one another. The new birth means that we have experienced undeserved love right that's a good thing for us to uh, remember Jesus says love one another just as I have loved you Jesus says abide in my love so that then you may love one another so to help us fulfill our calling to love others sincerely let us remember the amazing love that God has shown us in Christ God has demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. God gave up his own son to suffer and die under his wrath so that Christ could pay for our sins and secure our righteousness. And then though we were actively rebelling against him, God graciously intersected our lives with the gospel and gave us the new birth by his spirit. And amazingly, God has adopted us into his family. He's dwelt us by his spirit. He's begun this work of transforming us. And the Bible says he will be faithful to complete it on the day that Christ returns. So Christian, be encouraged. God has shown and will continue to show you amazing love that we do not deserve. And he promises to keep loving us and to never forsake us. And so the the question is then, having experienced such amazing, undeserved love, how can we not then love each other? I mean, it's... It's inconceivable, isn't it? When we've been forgiven this enormous debt, how could we not forgive others their debts against us? 
The love we show to others flows from God's love given to us. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Romans 5, 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And that then leads to the second bullet point. The new birth means that we are empowered to love. Oh, thank God we are empowered to love. God does not call us. Please get this. This is true of the entire Bible. God does not call us to do something without equipping and empowering us to do it in reliance on Him. Right? Through the proclamation of this good news, God has given us the new birth and has indwelt us with His Holy Spirit. So that means we're no longer a slave to sin. We have new life. We have God's Spirit living inside us. What is one of the ministries of God's Spirit? It's pouring God's love into our hearts, Romans 5.5. And it's empowering us to love others sincerely as God has loved us in Christ. And so the Holy Spirit of God has given us new life. He now dwells inside us and He's at work transforming us empowering us. He's transforming us from selfish people into loving Christ-like people. And we know that work is a process and that work is, is sometimes three steps forward and two steps back, isn't it? Because we still battle the flesh. We still have remaining sin. But by the indwelling spirit, we're to put to death that sin and we're to walk in love. That is the path the Spirit is leading us on. You know, we're faced with decisions every day, right? You know, oh, what do I do? What do I do? And the Bible doesn't give us all the details of every single decision we're going to have every day, right? Well, here's a good marker. You know, I mean, we pray. We seek God's word, you know, if it specifically speaks to it. But here's a, here's a good guideline for us. What's the loving thing to do? <laughs> right? What will... Be the loving thing to do. What will bring God glory? I know what I want, right? I know what I, I, I don't need to teach myself to want my way. That comes pretty natural, doesn't it? No, I need, I need to stop and pause and ask the Spirit to help me say, what does the other person need? Help me see it from their point of view. How can I love and serve them like you have loved and served me, Lord Jesus? But be encouraged. You have the Spirit of God if you're in Christ. And He is at work reminding you moment by moment of God's love and producing in you that love. So Christians, what does Peter tell us to do? What does God tell us to do through the pen of the Apostle Peter? Love one another earnestly because you are set apart for the Lord to live a life marked by love, and you've been born again with an eternal nature. You've experienced God's undeserved, undeserved love. You are empowered to love. Believers are to be known by their love. And so I just close with, you know, with encouraging you to examine yourself. Christian today, are you known for your love? Is your life marked, not perfectly, none of us could do that, right? But is your life marked by, is it characterized by love?
Let us confess and repent to God about where, where our love is, is missing. Let us, let us, that's a good way to respond to the message today. Let us confess and repent of where our love is missing. And let us remind ourselves regularly of the great love that we've been shown in Christ. And remind ourselves of the gospel. Remind ourselves that we're forgiven of our, of our lack of love. And then in that assurance, in that confidence of confidence in Christ, let us daily seek to humbly walk in the Spirit, asking Him to produce the fruit of love in our lives to the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh God, we, we stand in awe of you, Lord. As I'm... I'll use the language we've been learning in Sunday school. We are overwhelmed by you, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are overwhelmed at your love. Your love that would choose to save sinners like us. Your love that would, would um, humble yourself and come and take on human nature and live and suffer and die in our place. Your love that would forsake your own son so that we could be forgiven. Your love that would come and give us the new birth and indwell us. We are amazed at your love. Thank you for sh showing us your love. Thank you for not just dripping little bits of your love into us, but pouring your love into our hearts, overwhelming us with the, the flow of your love. Thank you for saving us from our, our lives of selfishness and Thank you for making us new creations. Please help us to walk in the Spirit. Please help us to increasingly abide in your love and display that love because we want others to, when they look at us, when they look at Abounding Grace Church, we want others to see something of you. We want them to know that we are your disciples. We want them to know that you are a loving God who forgives sinners. We want them to know that Jesus is a loving and righteous king. So please be at work in us, transforming us into loving people. Thank you for the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, please, and sing another song of praise.